Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So if you have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 1, we'll just refresh in our minds to set the scene, let the Bible set the scene for us here as we start reading in verse eight of Exodus one. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, behold the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass when there falleth out any war, they join themselves also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service when they made them serve was with rigor. Now, we're in a section here in Exodus which deals with Pharaoh's tactic against the Jewish people. One word to describe that tactic, discouragement. In our last study, we saw from verse 10 that Pharaoh had a goal, and that's written this way. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. That's it, right there. Those three words, lest they multiply. Pharaoh's goal in what he was doing was summed up is that he set out to do whatever it took to keep them from expanding as a people, keep them from multiplying. Now, that's the important part to see is that that's what he was after. Whatever was done, he wanted to accomplish this goal to keep them from multiplying. We saw further from verse 11 that Pharaoh, with his goal, had a strategy or a tactic. The strategy was expressed in the word to afflict them, to afflict them. So again, his goal is to keep them to multiply. His strategy was to afflict them, and that's what it says in verse 11. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burden. So the strategy, Pharaoh's goal to keep them to multiply, his strategy was also to enlist the whole of the Egyptian people into his tactic, so to speak, which was to afflict them or cause them to be depressed. The word afflict is very, very interesting because it's the word ana. And ana in Hebrew is the word that means to 
pushed down, to look down on, to despise, to separate yourself from, and then to look at someone as inferior. And it has as its root the word depress, depress. Now, Pharaoh tried to ana, he tried to put down, he tried to depress the Jewish people. He tried to depress them with a life of slavery so that they would come to the conclusion that it was just no use to have children. Why have children and bring them into this terrible life of slavery? So what Pharaoh was doing, first his goal was to keep them to multiply. His strategy was to enlist the the Egyptian people to do his work. His strategy was to depress them, and his tactic was to have them build these two cities. And so that's what he did. Now, what's so important for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to look beyond what's just here and to see the application for us. This is a history that we're studying. I don't use the word story, it's not a story. It's a history of what happened to the Jewish people. And we understand that Satan uses the same strategy of discouragement to try and get us to do what Pharaoh was trying to get the Jewish people to do, just give up out of discouragement. So we can say, and we see here, that Pharaoh is the god in this particular place. Pharaoh was like the god of discouragement in this picture. We see that Satan is the god of discouragement. And so if Satan is the god of discouragement, then God Elohim, God Adonai, God Jehovah, God Jehovah Jesus is the god of encouragement. And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's incumbent on us and we wanna be like him. And in being like him, we wanna be about our father's business. So what's our father's business? Our father's business is to encourage because he's a God of encouragement. So that means that we should be encouraging others. And in order to do this, we need to understand what is discouragement and what is encouragement. Pharaoh was trying to do here with the Jewish people to sink people down, to depress them down to the next state of mentality. The next state of mentality and discouragement is fatalism. Fatalism, and when the person has been pushed down by the devil into a state of fatalism, then the devil has been effective in neutralizing him for doing anything for God. And so when the devil discourages, he removes the heart, so therefore he gets a person neutralized from receiving anything from God. If we think of how powerful the tool of discouragement is for the devil, the tool of encouragement makes us think of the power that God has given to us and wants us to use in encouraging others. Now that's something we need to be thinking about through the day. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as followers of the God of encouragement, we need to be looking for opportunities to encourage others. It's so important. That's why when God looked at Joshua as he was ready to go out and do the great work of causing the Jewish people to inherit the land, Moses had come and was finishing his chapter in the history of the Jewish people. He had brought them up out of Egypt. He had brought them through the Red Sea. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. He had brought them to God and the key to having friendship with God through the tabernacle. 
he had brought them through the wilderness and had shown them how God had provided for them during 40 long years with the manna coming down from the sky and every day. And Moses had been a faithful teacher, a faithful teacher in showing them this was God, this was Jehovah Jesus who was doing all this for them. Moses had done all that. Now Joshua, who had grown up, so to speak, in the ranks there was now ready to take over the reins. And so it's interesting, and if you put yourself in Moses' position and you ask yourself the question, what would God say to me if I was Moses? What was important for Moses to say to Joshua was recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 138. First chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the great rehearsing the book of Deuteronomy, the rehearsing of all God did. And so what God told Moses is recorded for us in Deuteronomy 138 where it says, but Joshua the son of Nun which standeth before thee, it's God speaking to Moses, he shall go in thither, God was telling Moses he wasn't going in. And then God said, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it, land. In that verse, we see something very important, we see how God first told Moses before anything else in his dealing with Joshua to encourage him, put heart into him, and then he told Moses why Joshua needed encouragement. Because it was Joshua, not Moses, but it was Joshua that was going to be alone causing the Jewish people to inherit the land. And therefore, above everything else, God told Moses, encourage him. Encourage him with the words. Later on in Deuteronomy 3.28, God told Moses, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. So in this verse, we see how God told Moses to, again, encourage, and then he used the word strengthen. Encourage and strengthen Joshua. Encouragement is the greatest form of strengthening inside. Just think of God telling Moses. Moses, put heart into Joshua. Put passion into Joshua. Go encourage him, encourage him. Now it was very important, a very, very powerful motivator encouragement is. So just like God told Moses to encourage Joshua, we can hear God saying to us today, husbands, encourage your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands. Parents, encourage your children. Children, encourage your parents. Friend, encourage your friend. That would be God very much in the sense speaking here and telling us to encourage. Everyone needs encouragement. So how do you encourage? How do you encourage somebody? How do you put heart into someone, especially someone who is disheartened by telling them two things? First, that you have noticed specifically what they are doing. And that goes a lot longer than just saying something like, good job, good job. Because when you say good job, that could be about anything. It's not being specific. But 
when you did this, that was a good job. I noticed that you did that, good job. I saw this and that really impressed me and I just wanted to tell you how much that impressed me of what a good job. See, that makes all the difference to be specific. And next, tell them why it's a good job. It's a good job because I've seen how much it helps others, for example. That requires time and thoughtfulness. It's not just something you can just flip off the top of your mind because the first thing a person does when he hears that is he puts it through the sincerity analyzer and he asks the question, how sincere is that person when he says that? Encouragement is powerful and we all need to be encouraged. But what about the times when you and I really need to be encouraged and there is no person to encourage us. What about those times? Or worse than that, what about the times when everyone around us is discouraging us, not encouraging us, but discouraging us? How about those times? How about then? Now, that's certainly the case here with regard to Pharaoh, because when we look at this case here with Pharaoh, he had been successful in his strategy, as we saw by the word they, in verse 11, it was they afflicted him, in other words, the Egyptian people. So now we got all the Egyptian people who are doing nothing less than discouraging the Jewish people. So turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel 30, verse one. You know, 1 Samuel 30, verse one, and as you're taking time to turn to it, this is one of the most valuable passages in all the Bible for being encouraged when there's nobody to encourage us for standing up in the face of discouragement and finding that strength, that resource of strength and comfort that comes with encouragement, finding that motivation. So in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse one, and please follow along here as I read these six verses, which are like this. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept, and they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. This was the most discouraging time in David's life. Just picture it, it's been three long days since David and his men had left their wives and their children back in the city of Ziklag. It's been an emotionally draining time, like a roller coaster. David and his men at this time were aligned with the Philistines and it had been the Philistine king, Achish, 
who persuaded his people that David and his men should not be killed, but that they would, had really turned against the Jewish people at that time and were against uh, Saul, who was trying to kill him. That was well known. And so the Philistines were on their way to do battle with the Jewish people, and King Saul was the king over them, and they were on their way to do battle with Saul and his army, and David was going along with them. Oh boy, what an emotional time that was. Who knew, what was David, what was in David's mind? What was he thinking? He couldn't kill his own Jewish people. He already had made it very clear there's no way that he would put his hand against God's anointed Saul. What was he thinking? And here he is aligned with the Philistines who at any moment with their army could have turned and started a battle with David and his 600 men. What was David's men thinking also? They left their wives and their children back in Ziglag. There they are going there with the Philistine people. What an emotional time. They're on their way talking about slaughtering and killing their own brethren, the Jewish people, aligned with their enemies. Their wives and their children are back in the bat in the city of Ziklag. What an emotional roller coaster this all was going on. And what happened in the middle is that on the way to the battle, the Philistines said to the king, he can't come with us. And they spoke against him. And maybe they felt at that time that this whole thing is going to go from bad to worse as we may have to now turn and fight for our lives, and the Philistines persuaded Achish, the king, to send David back. So David's going back. What are his people thinking? What are David's people thinking? They're thinking to themselves, what kind of a waste of time has this been? What are we doing? We're going, then we're not going, and they're coming back, and after that, we can only imagine how David and his men were already emotionally drained. They were adrenaline out as far as the emotion and the roller coaster was concerned. And as they're approaching back home to Ziklag, we can just imagine who saw, we don't know, the first sight, but what passed in front of them as they saw smoke rising from ashes. That was their city. That was where their wives were. That's where their children were. And so they're wondering as they come back here, say, what has happened to our wives and our children when we went out on this expedition of folly? And so they're back there, and all the drama is now coming back again, and all they can think of is to be rejoined with their families, and they've been away for three days, and, and now you read, we understand as we read this in 1 Samuel 30 and the verse one, what struck them the most were the last four words of verse one where it says, and it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, the third day after they had been away, that the Amalekites invaded the south and Ziklag had smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. The Amalekites had invaded Ziklag, their place where their families were, and all they saw was just heaps of ashes of what had been a city and smoke rising from it. And we can just well imagine how the site when they first came over that and got a glimpse of that, how they must have run with all of their might to those heaps of ashes. And when that exhausted as they were, but nevertheless, it was a run of terror. And when they got to those heaps, how they must have started to turn over the ashes and looking for bones and wondering, are we gonna find the bones of our wives, the bones of our children? We can just picture them there looking pathetic, looking, screaming, crying out as they're trying to figure out. And then they realize they've been taken captives. And they've been taken captives. Why? 
only one reason, to abuse them and then to murder them. Because they thought of the Amalekites, what they would do to their wives and their families, and they might have said, you know, it would have been better off if we did find the bones. And they had been killed here. Because once they knew it was the Amalekites that had done this, then that was very specific for them. Because what came back to them is a memory of who the Amalekites are. Well, those weren't just any people, the Amalekites. The Amalekites and the Jewish people, they have a history that goes way back. They remember how God had instructed Moses who then told Joshua that when you come in contact with the Amalekites, you completely destroy them. As given in Deuteronomy 25, 16 through 19, where Moses says, for all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindermost of thee, even all that were feeble, behind thee when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God have given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. This was a people, the Amalek, Amalekites, This was a people, they had watched the Jewish people as they made their procession, their procession walk. They were going out of Egypt and they watched them and it says that the Jewish people at this time, they were faint and they were weary. They were tired, it had been a long walk out of Egypt with a lot of drama in the Red Red Sea and and the fire on Mount Sinai and the Jewish people were just worn out and they were walking and there were some that were more feeble, that were more weak. Who was more feeble and more weak? That would be the old, that would be the infirm, the sick, the children and they kind of dropped back to what area in the procession called in the Bible the hindermost, in other words, the end of the line and what it says is that This was such a bloodthirsty people. These were not warriors that were gonna face in battle, but these were the ones that they just came and murdered them. They murdered these ones, the weary and the faint, and it says because they feared not God. They were a people that had a philosophy, there is no God, there is no retribution, there is no judgment. I can do what I very well please, and I please to be bloodthirsty and a murderous, and that's Amalekites, that's the people we're talking about. And so God said, had said previously to Abraham, said your people are going to be in the land of Egypt for 400 years. During those 400 years time, this is a time when the cup of iniquity will be filling up for the Amalekites. The cup of the iniquity of the Amalekites, it will be full after 400 years. They will have done so many murders and so many horrible, wicked things that God was then going to use the Jewish people to bring judgment on them. And so when the Jewish people heard the Amalekites, I should say when David and his 600 men heard of the Amalekites, this was a bloodthirsty people. This was a person who loves to kill, a people who love to kill the lame and the weak and the women and the children. And they knew that the prophet Samuel, when Samuel had anointed or commissioned Saul to be king over Israel, he told him specifically in 1 Samuel 15, one through three, Samuel also said unto Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, 
over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came out from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep and camel and ass. They knew also that Saul had refused that command which he received at his anointing ceremony to be king and said save the best. And they knew that the Amalekites then had been left infuriated by the Jewish people because he did destroy many of them. And these bloodthirsty people were left to go by Saul and they were infuriated. And now we have an angry, murderous people. So if the Amalekites loved to murder, then why didn't they kill the families of David and his men? Verse two of 1 Samuel 30 explains why. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. 800-247-3051. 